Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide, a Kessler's production. In this episode, I chat with Matt Doherty. Matt is a North Carolina Tar Heel, a college basketball national champion, and a college teammate to the greatest basketball player ever, Michael Jordan. Matt is the former head coach at Notre Dame, UNC, Florida Atlantic, and SMU, while also serving as an assistant at Kansas for seven years. Today, Coach Doherty coaches businesses, and after chatting with him, it's easy to see why. We explore growing up on the playground courts, leaders that have shaped so many in dealing with haters and other obstacles. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcast, blog, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. When I have conversations like we're having now, it's all self-betterment to me. And if that helps me, that helps my family, that helps the people that work at my company, that helps my company, that helps anyone that consumes our content. And if we can focus on that and not get lost in anything else, we're going to have amazing conversations. We're going to create great content. We're going to talk to great business leaders. The business will happen. And you know, I think at this time that we're dealing with leadership, creative ways are going to shine right now because a lot of things are turned off. So can you shut it down? Can you create something? Can you write? Can you talk about it? Can you help someone out? That's what it's all about. And that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So good. yeah, well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the questions. Yeah. So how are you doing right now with all this going on? Yeah, I'm good. It's weird. I'm a half glass full kind of guy. And so I've had my family home and I envision this is how people lived where my grandparents grew up in Ireland. Uh, it's where People grew up in small towns where they have their kids and their kids would live close by or with them and share meals. And there was less distractions. There was more conversation. And it's been really kind of a weird blessing yeah. to be with my kids and my wife and my two dogs and just kind of hang out yeah, and watch movies and have dinner together and, and laugh. And so in a weird way, it's been good. Yeah. My business hasn't been that impacted. I do, you know, the leadership stuff. I do a lot of coaching. I do corporate talks. The talks, some have moved to webinars, Zooms. I've been doing Zoom, and which is easy. Some have been canceled in the coming months, but some other businesses have come on. And I think if you adapt, you know, it's all about adaptation. And then uh, I've been in the middle of writing a book. And I do a radio show. I have two days a week. I do a radio show in Charlotte, WFNZ on Wednesdays and WBT on Thursdays. So staying busy and just trying to grow my brand as a leader. Yeah. Create a website, create some content, and try to do some more coaching talks and create some online content. That's, when did you think content was important for you? I, I felt uh, probably in the last six months. I've coached most of my adult life, but always, I'm always planning for the next step. And I had a business model in mind of doing some TV, doing some private business like real estate, and doing some coaching 
speaking. I like to do it. It's my fix. It energizes me. It's an opportunity to coach a team that I don't have anymore. And, um, you know, realize you better have a book. You better have a story. And you got to stay relevant with content on a website. And if you want some passive income, you've got to create some content, whether it be online courses where people can pay for it and watch it while you don't have to be present. So I realized, and then social media content, you need to stay relevant. It's good. Well, you're right. You said it because it's that leverage. It's that piece when you're not around, someone can hear your conversation. They could hear what you're all about and they could say, Hey, we want to hire him for leadership or need him for a webinar or need to bring him in. And it's that leverage component when done genuinely, right? That someone could listen while you're off doing something else. And that's truly what it's all about. I mean, it's got to be real. It's got to be true stories. It's got to come from the heart and have conviction and years and years of understanding and practice and whatever it is that you believe or or documenting. I mean, anyone younger can do it as well. Maybe they don't have the experiences, but they can tell from their perspective, I think, plays a role in it. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting because now is a great time, we say, to create content, to tell your story, to get yeah. out there, to have conversations with people. And and there are people out there that can help, even if it's your own kids. I mean, like you said, they have an understanding with social media. They've been around it. They can move around on a computer quickly and get your feet off the ground. So I think that's smart. Yeah. So it's fun. It's fulfilling. I enjoy the coaching, the speaking. The radio station, WBT in Charlotte, has been a good partner. And we want to continue to grow that. And my focus is is leadership. So... Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. So a couple of things. One is... So I cite John Maxwell, obviously. Obviously, follow him closely. My business partner, there's not a day that goes by where he's not sending me like a quote from one of the podcasts that they do. And right. he eats it up. We call him the strategy addict. And it's just... This is that leadership. I don't know what the word is. It's just good stuff. It's stuff you want to hear. It's the stuff you want to put inside your head as opposed to this other stuff that you could possibly put inside your head. And it's important. I mean, and yeah, you, it's wisdom. Yeah. Your dad is a wise man. What I realized, Eric, is unless you're in position to have a real large buyout, I don't want to be in position where somebody can fire me. Yeah. And so, like you touched on. So, you know, I want to have some multiple income streams. I want to be my own boss. I want to be able to pivot when I want to pivot. But I still realize it takes a team to yeah. do it. But I just don't want, you know, and then as a 58-year-old white male, I don't check a lot of boxes mm-hmm. for companies. So what I realized, the advantage of having gray hair is that you're considered to have experience. And so my experiences are vast. You know, I joke, I couldn't keep a job, right? I pivoted a lot, but there's this book out called Range and it talks about the benefits of having all these different experiences. And so, you know, I can touch on a lot of topics and I think relate to a lot of people. And uh, you touched on some things about being authentic and real messages. And, you know, one thing I'm not is a BSer. Yeah. I like to keep it real, be authentic and emotionally connect with people. So, First, it felt a little weird trying to do this. Like, who am I to people would pay to hear me talk or buy a book? But quite frankly, there's a lot of people out there that haven't done a whole lot that write books and speak. And you're like, they don't have any experience except for their ability to talk. And, you know, maybe they're well read. And I think when you go through some things, then you can really connect. And I talk a lot about failure, quite frankly, because people don't talk about it. And I think then I can connect with people when I do talk about failure. 
how to overcome it, how to deal with it, and how to get better from it. Yeah. I think you were talking to a lot, that book range that you're mentioning, and I haven't, I'm going to look that up, but this talent stack, there's very few people that can say, okay, well, the leadership that you bring to the table is through all the different experiences that you've gone through of being a player, winning a national championship, being surrounded by certain people, being a coach, having this business experience. It's like when you start stacking those different things up, it's who else has that? There's only right. a few people that can possibly even have that talent stack and that understanding and those experiences. And I think that's what it is. It's being able to put yourself out in front of it. I mean, and that's the thing too, because when people start putting themselves out there, they're thinking, well, what's someone else going to think? Well, you've dealt right. with it. I mean, if I were to look at someone who's going to deal with it the most, it would be a player or a coach in one of the major sports in our country, right? And it exists in Europe too with soccer or football, but it's haters, right? And you the era of social media. I mean, you guys are probably lucky you didn't have to play during the era of social media. If you make one bad move, it's like, oh my goodness, what is wrong with this guy? He can't make a free throw. Right. Something, right? So the era of haters exists not only when you're playing, when you're coaching, and now when you're out here in business and creating content, and then it starts going in your head and you're talking about the things that you've had to go through. And we talked about it when you first got on here, you're like, what school did you go to? Oh, Christian Leitner, of course. And I was like, I, I wasn't a fan of his. We were haters of his, right? And and right. and that was the world we lived in. And we've come to appreciate it. You get older and you get more wisdom, I would say. But how have you dealt with... I guess you dealt with haters like any athlete or any coach would have dealt with it. It's inevitable. It doesn't matter if you're the best coach in the world. They're going to have that. How have you been able to deal with it? Was it hard at first? Did it get easier? Were you just like, I really don't care because you played? I've read that story about you playing on the playground, Bob McKill up, and they were like, Yeah, good luck getting out here, Matt. You're not playing with us. Go get, go to the deli and get us sandwiches and then show up. You had to earn your way on the court. That was great. But you've been dealing with it forever. Yeah, no, it's the competitiveness that comes out. You got to be competitive. And it's like, you know, I'll shut you up. Like, I'll show you. And that's the attitude you have to have. Like, you got to embrace that. I was talking to a group of financial advisors yesterday. And one thing that I always talk about is smile in the face of adversity. Like, embrace it. Like, all right, let's bring it. Let's do this and take it as a challenge. And that's what I've tried to do my whole career. You walk on the floor in front of 30,000 fans at Syracuse or 10,000 fans at Duke. And it's like, yeah, okay, whether you're a coach or player. And it's like, this is fun. There's nothing more enjoyable as a coach or player than to go on the road and shut up the home crowd. And so those are the haters. And you confront them head on. Even the ones that are vocal to you, I always went right to them. Just went right to them, right, right up, even in the stands. And I remember this old lady sitting under the basket at UVA. She was wearing this green suede outfit, all dolled up, very reserved lady. And she's yelling and screaming at me as I'm taking the ball out of bounds in front of her. And I looked at her and said, ma'am, look at the scoreboard. <laughs> and she, she just shut up. Yeah. Like, she didn't think I could talk back. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so you just bring it to a head in a weird way. You like the attention. Yeah. You know, because you're on this stage. Yeah. So it's stimulating to me. Yeah. Was it different as a coach? No, same way. Same way. Just you didn't have as much control. Yeah. As a player, I could just throw it to Michael Jordan, James right. Worthy. And, <laughs> and I felt pretty good about our chances yeah. as a coach. You know, you didn't have as much control. But yeah, same deal. I mean, going into Duke and they're yelling at you and screaming at you. And I think you're. E it's easier to put it in perspective as a coach. Yeah. You know, because you are older and more wise. 
You have more focus at that point? I think as a player, you have more focus because you're really just worried about your job. One job, yeah. But as a compared to like a college athlete, so still like the focus where you're like, you're saying you're young. I mean, you're a freshman. You're just right. in high school recently and you're, you guys are playing some real, this is a real deal now. And so right, you're, you're able right. to focus at that time. I mean, you can turn the, is it, I guess, do you turn that dial up because you guys have trained together now? And like you just mentioned, James Worthy is an experienced player when you show up to Carolina. Is it players like James Worthy and Sam Perkins and, and others that are helping you get in line and understand what's coming up next, like what you're about to walk into? Yeah, no question. I mean, that's why uh, senior leadership is so important. Sam and I were in the same grade. James was one year ahead. We had a great leader my freshman year, Al Wood, and then Jimmy Black, and then James Worthy. And then hopefully Sam and I and Michael were those type of leaders to the younger players. And that's what makes it harder now is these players walk into it and they don't have the veterans on the team that can show them the way in the age of the one and done. Yeah. College basketball. I mean, how do you see a talent level, the jumping ability, the, the three-point shooting that exists, but at the same time, they're maybe there's more flow to the game because there's less like if you go in the paint, maybe you're not getting knocked on your ass like you used to, right? It's different. I show my son the games. I'm like, wow, look at this. You know, you watch the old Bulls games when they were playing the Pistons and I mean, they're right. shoving Scottie Pippen in the third row. It was like, man, you might get arrested if you do it today. But yeah. the game's different, obviously, and they've done that on purpose. But how do you see the game today versus when you were playing? Well, I think that uh, I sound like an old man, but... I do believe the game was prettier back then because I think there was more movement. I think some of that's come back a little bit with the Warriors and San Antonio, mm -hmm. where they do move and pass and cut and share the ball. I think that's pretty. I think the game is less physical now, especially in the NBA because yeah. of the rules. So I think it's prettier. I just I get tired of seeing the same style of play every night. Yeah. Because everyone's trying to do the same thing where you know, that's one thing I do like about college is that there are different styles of play. You know, you have Virginia plays one way, North Carolina another, Duke plays another, Syracuse another. So there is variety as opposed to you watch an NBA game and you really almost plug and play. You know, you can just put the same players out there with different uniforms. It looks very similar. A lot of pick and roll, yeah. a lot of three-point shooting. There's very few unique styles of play unless you have someone like LeBron James or the Greek Freak yep. where they can play a little differently. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd agree. It's funny too, you, before you'd mentioned taking the haters face on, I was not a fan of the Pistons and the bad boys and they relished apparently in the fact of showing up and shutting up the crowd. And it just, you had said right. that before and it made me think of them and they loved it, right? They'd get booed and people are yelling and who knows, probably throwing stuff at them, throwing slurs at them at least, right? So right. the game's changed quite a bit. And then, you know, kind of going back and you've already mentioned these guys a little bit, but you're, there you are, 1982 College Basketball National Championship. You've mentioned the names already and you guys show up there. And what was it like? I mean, do you think back on those moments? I mean, obviously in your, your leadership days now and your coaching and you can pull back on these memories that you had. And, and there you were in one of the greatest college basketball games ever. It's always shown on TV. I think it was on recently, right. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was but, on Saturday. Yeah. yeah, I watched it with my kids. It was pretty cool to watch it with my kids. You know, I hadn't watched that game in full since probably May of 1982. Wow. You realize watching it, the little things, and I was always 
conscious of making mistakes. And yeah, I made some mistakes, but so did Michael Jordan, so did James Worthy, so did Patrick Ewing. And I think that's one thing is playing with confidence. That is, confidence is so fragile, even with adults. And I think even in business, you know, that's the carryover is being able to walk into a meeting prepared with confidence and security and giving your team confidence and creating an environment where there's a freedom to make mistakes, that mistakes aren't fatal, that there are opportunities to learn and grow, and that if you create an environment where there's fear of failure, then people aren't going to reach their fullest potential and the organization will not reach its fullest potential. So I talk a lot about mining for the truth as a leader, that you've got to create an environment where people, your team can tell you the truth. And that if you don't manage the truth, the truth will manage you eventually. And that'll leave you, as I tell a story about holding a cardboard box or being escorted out of the building with your personal belongings, if you don't manage the truth. So you want to get ahead of the truth. Uh, You want to surround yourself with truth tellers. And a lot of leaders, either it's their ego, insecurity, they bully people. They don't want to be challenged. And as a result, the people around them don't come to them with the truth. And I'd rather have the truth up front so I can manage it and ride that wave than get crushed by that wave. So, so yeah, so you were talking about mining for the truth, truth tellers. It's interesting. I was talking to another business leader. I'm not sure if you've spoken to Tim Kite before. Tim Kite. Was, oh, I love Tim Kite. Yeah. I don't know Tim Kite. Okay. I'd love to connect with Tim. Yeah. I use his formula, E plus R equals O. Yeah. I use it all the time. That's awesome. That's probably been one of the most impactful things I've ever learned. And I know Urban Meyer a little bit because we worked together at Notre Dame. Oh, so right. that's how I started hearing about Tim and yeah, I follow Tim on Twitter and I recommend people follow him. He's good. Absolutely. Yeah. He's got a lot of good stuff on LinkedIn. We had him on the podcast probably been about a month and oh man, fascinating because as I told you before, having the background I do with Ohio State and came to learn of Tim Kite because it was like 2012 and they go undefeated and they kind of change some things around. JT Parrott comes in, they bring this guy in and he's like this leadership guy in what are we talking about leadership? You know, the coaches are doing the leadership and he meets Tim Kite and the story, the rest is history. And two years later, they go on to win the national championship. And so much of it was about the culture and the leadership and the truth telling. So anyway, you say the truth teller and I hear him saying it and it's so right, right? And the truth teller can be your friend, business partner, colleague, wife, my wife's a truth teller. She always likes yeah, to tell me. Too, yeah. man. <laughs> mine is too, man. Mine is too. Wow. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I married her because I knew she wasn't going to BS me. That's it. But boy, oh boy, be careful what you wish for. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. fun and it hurts, right? I mean, a truth teller is not a comfortable thing to yeah. have on the other end of it. And it's sometimes you don't no. want to hear it. It's very hard. We were talking to David Meltzer, who's, you know, in the sports world, runs a sports agency and content, doing all these. He's got a lot of content out there on LinkedIn right now. And he was saying how when he showed up one day, his wife says, I'm not happy. And basically, you need to get your act together. And he got very defensive about it. He didn't like it. And he was like, no, 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 it's all you. It's not me. Until he realized that, oh, wait, it is him. And he needed to change. And that was his truth teller. He just didn't want to face the truth right then until he really had to face the truth. And, you know, the rest is history and doing amazing things. It sounds like to you, I'm sure you had a lot growing up as far as truth tellers is concerned. But the story that I mentioned before with Bob McKillop and showing up at the playground, that seemed like he might have been a truth teller for you. Is that right? I think the park, and I'm in the midst of writing 
finishing one book, getting ready to start another, and I have another on the back burner, and it's about the park. The park is a truth teller. (laughs) The game of basketball is a truth teller. Sports is a truth teller. Because you can BS yourself, but you can't BS the game. And so if you perform, you have your spot on the court, on the team, in the legacy of the game. But if you don't perform, you don't, you won't. And so there's a purity to it. And so when you go to the park, and one of the lessons that I talk about with the park, and this is where I think that youth basketball is being underserved, there are two players that start out by picking teams. Right away, there's a hierarchy. And you know if you're one of the better players because you're going to be picking the teams. And then you know if you're the next best player because you're going to get picked first. And then the third best, fourth best player, and then the fifth, but all the way down to the 10th best player. And then there's going to be guys that don't get picked and they're sitting on the sideline. And they have a choice. They can either accept it, quit, or try to get better. And nowadays, so much of sport is organized by adults that kids don't have that self-regulation, self-evaluation, peer evaluation. And so they can always BS themselves now because their friends are not going to tell them the truth. Very rarely is a friend going to say, you know what, you don't deserve to play. You're not that good. You don't work hard in practice. So. They're going to sit around their dorm room or their apartment and say, man, coach is screwing me. And what are their teammates going to say? Yeah, you're getting screwed. You should play more. And then a guy leaves the room and they kind of roll their eyes like, hey, he ain't that good. Where if you're picking your own team in the park and someone says, hey, you got next. You're the 11th best player. You didn't make the 10th. Where's that kid going to turn? Can't turn anywhere but inward and say, Oh, dang, they don't think I'm that good. So I better work on my game or I better do something else or I better bring the best ball to the park to make sure that I do get involved (laughs) in the game because they always need a ball. And if I have the best ball, maybe they'll let me play. Now with AAU, kids don't play pickup. They don't choose their own sides. And I think that is something that is really missing because it helps kids develop leadership skills. It helps them develop negotiation skills. It helps them develop accountability. It helps them develop all those types of skills that they're missing out on because adults are organizing the events for them. That's absolutely happening. So you're talking about choosing sides or picking teams. Well, let's say the top two players, they're not on the same team the third and fourth best player aren't on the same team and so on down the line. How has the culture of in college basketball is different because there's a recruiting and you got this one and done. It's the, that's a whole different cycle. But if you move on to the highest level of basketball and obviously we've seen it and it changed a little bit this past year, but the super teams right. forming and everyone saying Kevin Durant, amazing player going to the warriors, amazing team. But it seemed like, and I don't know, maybe, maybe players are, cause it never happened back then. Would they have done it back then? Because it seems like you said in that culture of playing on the playground, that would never would have happened. No. You want to have the best team so you can run the court, right? Right. But I don't ever see 
like Michael Jordan trying to recruit Larry Bird to come play for the Celtics or Larry trying to recruit Michael. It's like, hey, screw them. We're going to try to kick their butt as opposed to all the buddy-buddy stuff off the court where they hang out. And it's like, hey, let's let's get together and try to win three in a row. That, that wasn't happening. Yeah. I'm not a fan of it. Right. And you can say, well, like Charles Barkley never won a championship or Carl Malone and John Stockton never won a championship. They were still great players to kind of wave the white flag and say, okay, I'll go join you because I have a better chance of winning. You know, there was a different type of competitiveness back then. Yeah. You guys won the championship at Carolina, but if I would have taken that championship away, let's say Fred Brown comes down and they hit the shot and you guys lose in dramatic fashion, that would have been terrible. Do you look back? If you can't do it, I get it because that's not what happened. Do you, would you look back at your time at Carolina and say that was a failure because you didn't win it? I don't think a failure. No, no. Disappointment or disappointing. Mm-hmm. And that's where Coach Smith is so good about keeping things in perspective. You know, he, Michael Jordan hits the game winning shot and he says publicly, Am I a better coach because Michael hit that shot? <laughs> I'm the same coach, right? So there's a fine line. Jeff Van Gundy talks about some made or miss league, you know, balls in the air, good coach, bad coach, good coach, bad coach, ball goes in, good coach. So I think that that's where you need to really be self-aware and be able to find your fulfillment in other places besides the sport. And that's to me where your family and your faith come in that, I don't know, Nickel School, is that a Catholic school? It's not. No. I grew up Catholic and I don't practice Catholicism, but I'm a Christian. So like, am I more of a basketball player or more of a Christian? Now, I like to be viewed as a basketball player. I like to be viewed as a good coach. I like what people call me coach. You know, but at the end of the day, as I stand before God, <laughs> you know, he's, he's going to say, are you... Were you a good Christian, right? Yeah. And you missed that foul shot at the end of that Georgetown game. And, you know, I can't let you in now. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we'll be judged by who we are as people and Christians as we more than basketball players. And I think that's a tough transition for athletes and coaches that give all they can to the sport and become identified by the sport. And then when that is over for them as a player or coach, they fall emotionally, looking to grasp on to an identity. And that's why I think your faith is so important. Because could I live without basketball? Yeah, I I think I could. There was a time where I could, you know, and I struggled. I mean, that's, that's a tough thing. We call it the superhighway. Coach Smith would call it the superhighway. You're on the superhighway at North Carolina. You're living pretty darn well. You're staying in Ritz-Carlton's, and back then we didn't take a lot of charter planes, but charter flights, you were rock stars on campus and at 21 years old, and then your season's over. If you're not going to the pros, you're not getting to the front of the line to the clubs anymore. Yeah, You're not getting the Ritz-Carlton's anymore. You're not eating at Ruth's Chris anymore. That's a hell of a fall for someone who's 21, 22 years old. And so you've got to really find your identity and it better be more than just being a basketball player. But falling off that super highway and going on the, uh, what do we call them in New York? 
you have the highway, the freeway, the expressway, the yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you know, you got to go on the side roads and kind of navigate and hope you get back on the superhighway, but you may may never get back on the superhighway. Yeah. And that's why you've got to have your faith needs to be important to find out that your true identity is more than just being a basketball player. But however, the beauty is those pl- people that can flip that switch and when they get on the court, they're stone cold killers. But when they're off the court, they're secure with who they are and they don't need the game. And I think that's a real beautiful thing. And I look at certain players that really were able to make those adjustments and go across the median from one path to the other. And, and who would p- be examples? I would say like a Lafonso Ellis to me is that type of guy or Hubert Davis is that type of guy where they don't identify with the sport. They don't need the sport. Really, the sport needs them more than they need the sport. And there's just kind of a piece about them, even though Lafonso Ellis is now on TV all the time, but he wasn't. And there was still a piece about him. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing when people come to a, they have peace in their lives. Yeah. And they can walk away from it. You'd mentioned Carl Malone or Charles Barkley. And we did this piece on Enjoy the Journey because I'm from Buffalo, right? Buffalo is n- notorious for getting there and then not winning it. So then you look back and say, as if you look at those players and they're, they've embedded themselves into the culture of Western New York, would they have loved to have won? Should they have won? Right? Possibly yes. But because they didn't win, does that make them like not good? Did they enjoy the journey along the way? And you look at a Ted Williams. You look at the players that you mentioned. Patrick Ewing, who you guys played against. He didn't win. Well, he happened to play in the era of Michael Jordan. Was Patrick Ewing an amazing player? Absolutely. Did they still enjoy the journey? Did they enjoy the... Because that's the other piece of it. I would imagine you guys had a lot of fun. You personally had a lot of fun getting better, surrounding yourself with these, with this amazing coach, this amazing person that was your leader, these players that you got to play with, these, this environment, the practices, the, the off season. I would imagine the process of it. And I know it becomes trust the process and all this is very cliche type stuff and coaches use it all the time. But I think because it's, it has to be true because people like Dean Smith are out there and they're talking about these things. But I would imagine that process of you getting better, whatever that is, and at the moment, being a better player, being a better coach, if you hadn't won it, it still would have been an incredible journey to be on. Am I right? No question. The ABC Sports, Wide World Sports had an old line, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. It's energizing to be on the stage and to be in the arena, not knowing the outcome, believing that you'll win. But we lost, and we should have been the four final fours. I mean, we lost in 83 in the game to Georgia to go to the final four. And in 84, we had the best team ever played on and lost to a bad Indiana team in the second round. So if you're going to be judged by that one game, that one season, and people will, you know, that's sports. Listen, if you don't have the intestinal fortitude to deal with it, then <laughs> don't play it. Like, you're putting yourself out there. It's like, all right, you know, there's a good-looking girl at a party. You're going to go ask her to dance? No? Well, then, and if you do, she might say no. Do you, like me taking the job at North Carolina, I could have 
turned it down, then I probably would have wondered the rest of my life what it would have been like if I took it. Well, I took it and I failed. So I spend a lot of time thinking, well, maybe I should have just stayed at Notre Dame. But you know what? That's life. Your life is nothing but a series of decisions and dealing with the consequences. The better decisions you make, the better your life will be. And life is not freaking perfect. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. Hell, we're going through it right now with pandemic. Life's not fair. If Jesus could be crucified, best human being of all time, right? And it could happen to him. Why couldn't something bad happen to me and you? And we're not promised a smooth path. The Bible talks about you will face hardship. And part of the reason you faced hardship is to help you grow and become closer to God. So what do people do, even the people that are atheists, when something goes bad, what do they say? They start praying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, help me, God. Like, wait wait, wait a second, dude. I thought you were an atheist. (laughs) My car is hanging off the cliff here. I need... I need all the help I can get. So I think that you face adversity because then it tests you and makes you realize, okay, what's important? This adversity we're dealing with right now as a country is like, okay, what's important? Well, my family's important. Our health is important. And our belief in God's important. Yeah. Because, hey, if this is the end, I want to get into the, I call it the big house. I want a good seat in the big house. And if it's not the end, Great. Maybe we learned some lessons that, hey, we get better get our stuff together as a society yeah. and not be so damn selfish. Yeah. Well, as long as that big house wasn't a reference to Michigan's football stadium, we can continue on with the conversation. No, yeah, I'm sorry right? about that. That's, <laughs> no, right. Good. that's right. That's right. That's, that's right. right. That's right. That all that's ties right. together at some point, right? No, I'm that's glad right. you. <laughs> but there, there are so many parallels between sports and yeah. leadership. I don't and... think Urban and Tim Kite are going to want to hear that. So, <laughs> no, 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 no. So I'm glad you brought up, though, the coronavirus and obstacles. Think about that a lot. And you obviously see it in sports all the time. It's like the obstacle of, well, this is going to be a challenge. I can't compete. This is a new level or trailing by 10 points with 10 minutes to go. There's certain obstacles. Some obstacles are bigger than others. Like you said, we're all working from home right now. This is like, I don't even know what there is. No word It's surreal. Maybe is the best word I could use to describe what's happening right now. But opportunity still presents itself with uncertainty, with a lot of uncertainty in front of us. And you bring up this time of these obstacles. But I think if you go through life and you've been punched in the face, you've been kicked in the teeth, you've run into this, you've been laid off, you're like, I've failed before. I got to imagine people like yourself are saying, bring it on. It's kind of like you were talking about before. This is a hater, but this is a hater that you can't even see. And there's so much uncertainty around it. But at the same time, it's like possibly you're attacking it the same way you would someone who's calling you out in the court when you're shooting a free throw. Right. There's so many lessons from team sports, and I'm so glad that my kids, my daughter Rose at North Carolina, my son, his lacrosse season was cut short at Bellarmine University. And there's so many things that you're taught in team sports that other people don't get. And that's dealing with adversity, dealing with bad coaches, dealing with teammates, setting goals, dealing with failure, overcoming adversity, working together as one. The best Players don't make up the best team, but the best team always wins. And you could be down 10 with five minutes to go and still have a chance to win. And and that winning mindset and the never giving up. And Pete Carrill wrote a book that I, I enjoyed called The Smart Take from the Strong. You know, just because they're bigger, stronger, more talented doesn't mean you can't win the game. So the stimulation 
the physically and mentally and emotionally makes you live, like makes you alive, brings an energy to your body and gives you this experience that you'll never forget that other people don't get to experience. And so, yeah, you may not win the game. You may never win a championship, but you were in the arena. And that's the old saying from Teddy Roosevelt had a great quote about the man in the, the arena. Man, he's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong man stumbles or whether where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually drive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Amen, man. That's it. Yeah. It right there. Boom. (laughs) I get goosebumps reading that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's powerful stuff. I remember my girlfriend, someone someone bet my girlfriend that I would never play in the NBA. You talk about haters. Like, yeah. what an asshole, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't. But like, screw you, right? Yeah. You know, how shallow, how low, how lack of depth, that's how you're going to bet on somebody else. How about betting on yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what being an athlete is or someone who starts their own business like you did. You know, it's no different. There are days when you you probably look like you got to answer your wife. Your wife probably says, hey, how are we doing, Eric? And you know what she means. And you're like, oh, we're, we're doing great. We're going to be fine. And, you know, you close the door, you go to the bathroom, you throw up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's real. That's being on the stage, man. That's yeah. putting it out there. There's a lot of people, you know, that's the way of life. Like, hey, yeah, man, that's, I'm an entrepreneur. I own a restaurant. How, how would you like to own a restaurant right now? You know, how would you like to own a trucking company? How would you like to own a hotel? You put yourself out there and then you live. You live. There's a there's an energy that goes through your body like nothing else when you walk on the court of a big game. There's no energy like it. And then when you win, there's no bond that's created like that where you've done it with other people and you can look them in the eye knowing what we went through from the beginning, from the first workout to the last game. And there's a great satisfaction and peace that comes with that. I was watching my kid play basketball. He was younger and he was at Yes I Can, which is here in Charlotte, Yes I Can Basketball League. And the head guy was there, head coach is talking. And he says, the game had just ended. One team won, one team lost. The team that lost, lost a close game and they were pretty upset. These kids are about eight, nine years old, right? But they lost and they were upset for a moment. They were going to get over it fast. But anyway, they were upset in the moment. He talked to them and he said something. I'll never forget it. It's along the lines of what you're saying. There's three feelings in sports, winning, losing, and not playing. Half of you won, half of you lost. The people that aren't here, they're not, not everyone, right? They're not playing. Right. That's it. And I attribute it just to what you said in business. You start a company. You know what? You're putting your heart and your soul and everything you got into that thing. You're playing. Well, you know what? You tried to make the NBA, but you know what? Other people didn't. 
they weren't even playing. They're on the sidelines. Like, what's right. it to that person? You know, my son will tell you, oh, there's this kid saying this or that. That's happening when they're very young. Those are the people you, you don't have time for them. You have right. too many important things. You're too important to have to worry about. And how it's easier said than done, no doubt about yep. it. And it's hard and everyone's going to deal with it differently. But I see you saying it and I see how passionate you are about it. And we talk to people who've been in and around and made it to these incredible levels. And it's like, we should be listening to Matt Doherty. We should be listening to people when they speak up and they talk about those things. You were talking about James Worthy earlier. I looked up the box score. He had 28 points in the national championship. What is something that the thing that stood out to me the most, not the most, you guys won it. He was two for seven from the free throw line. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I grew up, I mean, I was young, but there he was in the Lakers and this two for seven from the free throw line. Like, could you imagine social media when he misses another free throw? And, it, and like, this is supposed to be the best player and this is there. It's just amazing. But like, he was in an environment, well, he could make a mistake. That's team sports. Someone else maybe had to make that shot. You had to get this rebound. Michael Jordan had to hit the big shot. It's just like, he was playing. What if you guys lost? Because if you lost, all of a sudden, that two for seven, I guarantee you, right. was probably one of the biggest talking points that would have happened. Said, well, they lost because we well, had a great game. It's two for seven from the free throw line. Right, right. No, it, listen, but that's the risk of being out there. And you have to understand, and I used to say this back then, it's never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. People see things on TV or on social media and they say, wow, I'd love to be, you know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Oh, oh really? <laughs> Would you, you know, like, do you understand what they have to go through and how they deal with the public and the expectations and the friends, supposed friends now that are latching onto them. And that's why I think that go, go back to the Bible, you know, the comparison games are the work of the devil. Like, and that's the toughest thing. One of the toughest things, Eric, is to go from all you do is compare yourself to the next player on your team, to the player on the other team that you're guarding, to your our team that versus their team. All sports is is comparison games. You're comparing yourself. As a kid, am I the best on the block? Am I the best on my team? Am I, am I best in Nassau County? Am I the best on Long Island? Am I the best in New York State? Am I the best in the country? And then the tough thing is the comparison game that can get you in trouble is, okay, do I have the biggest house on the block? Do I have the nicest car? Do I belong to the nicest country club? Do I have the most beautiful wife? Is my kid the smartest? that's where you fall into a trap that is the devil's work. And so, again, I go back to finding the peace of finding where you, as a competitor, that's always been comparing yourself and competing to be able to say and accept that, okay, this is my life, this is who I am, and I'm going to do the best I can, but without being, it's not who I am. And that is a tough thing because. As a coach, you want your players to identify with winning basketball, but yet as a Christian, you don't want them to be identified with just basketball. You want them to be identified as being a good Christian person. So there's the catch. That's a catch. That's hard. There's conflict there. It's like a Greek tragedy, you know, 
but life's not easy. Yeah. Well, it requires a lot of thinking, right? Thinking through things. And, and that's why I could see you doing it as you're even talking that yeah. you're having to think through this and it's not easy. It's not, oh, here's the answer and just go yeah. do that. Right? You can't just flip <laughs> a switch. Like right. You're wired to compete and be the best. And then all of a sudden, well, you know, I don't have the biggest house. Yeah. I'm not making the most money. I'm not, you know, and that's competition and that's life. Yeah. Michael Jordan as successful he is, he's not the richest guy in the country. Yeah. There's always someone else, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's got to be a piece of acceptance, but yet still striving. Yeah. That's kind of the, the struggle, the inner struggle. Yeah. Well, you brought him up a few times and you're talking about, well, maybe greatest basketball player to ever play and you're on his team. And if I could go back right now, back in time, and I, I promise you, I was, I, I liked the Bulls before they ever went on the run. It changed and I stopped talking about it. But if I looked in my room, I'd see all these Bulls posters and basketball and just, I just college basketball, NBA, just absolutely loved it. And here I am sitting chatting with you and you're on his national championship team that we just talked about. And you played with him and you talked about like what it took to become what he became as a basketball player. And you were there at the beginning of it, at least, you know, in the college sense. What was it like playing with Michael Jordan? I jokingly say it was easy. <laughs> when you have guys like Michael Jordan and James Worthy, Sam Perkins, Kenny Smith, Brad Darty, Al Wood on your team, it's easy because they're talented. So it makes your job easier. I talk to a lot of corporations. I have a leadership practice, a Darty leadership practice. And I call it a practice, by the way, because you got to practice leadership. You just can't take a seminar, read a book, and all of a sudden you're a good leader. <laughs> it takes practice, just like it takes practice for your foul shots or practice with your at the driving range if you're a golfer. You've got to practice it to get good at it. And so one of the things that I love learning about reading, I think you're impacted by two things in life. One is the books you read, and two, the people you meet. And Jack Welch, and I have it back on my shelf back here, my bookcase, the art of a straight from the gut, straight from the gut. And he talks about the four E's and he talks about, do you bring energy? Two, can you energize others? Three, can you execute? Four, can you execute with an edge? And Michael brings all four of those things. He, he brings great energy. He has great passion. And I think the great ones do. And then he can energize others with a quick pat on the back or a comment. He can get you rebooted. And then thirdly, he can execute because he's smart and he's talented. And he does it with an edge. I mean, if that means he has to run through you, he'll run through you. If it means he has to hit you with an elbow, he'll hit you with an elbow. And I think the great ones have those qualities. When you look at guys like Larry Bird, great energy. He can energize others. He can execute with an edge. I think LeBron has that, but not the edge that Michael has. I think Kobe had the edge. So I think the great ones have that. Jason Kidd had the energy, could energize others, could execute with an edge. So the great ones have it. And Michael had that in early age. His energy was off the charts and he loved the game. He loved the game of basketball and continually worked at it. Didn't stop. So when you hear the stories of when he was in Chicago and the young players, the early draft pick, they struggled with him because yeah. he checked them pretty early. Did you see that at oh, yeah. Carolina? Yeah, yeah. And Mike was a year younger than me, but he could be very vicious in his competition and you know, I remember going through a slump one time and he 
you know, I was shooting, I was working with a sports psychologist and I was trying to have the positive mindset. And when I'd shoot in this drill, he'd call it, he'd say brick, brick, brick. <laughs> and I remember that getting to me and I'm thinking, man, it shouldn't get to me. I should be mentally tougher than that, but he's a competitive guy and he's going to talk junk. And if you're not strong enough to handle it, you'll crumble. And he'd probably rather handle that, see that in practice and see it in the game. And I remember the stories about Steve Kerr and he and Steve Kerr getting into it with the Bulls in practice. And I think they got into a fist fight or something. Mm -hmm. And Michael grew to respect him because Steve didn't back down. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing. He didn't want you to back down. He just wants you to have a toughness that he knows that he can count on when the game gets tough. And so he's going to challenge you to see where that floor is in you. And once he finds the floor, he's either going to embrace you as a teammate if you have a high floor, or if you have a low floor, he's not going to show a lot of respect to you and probably yeah. won't give you the time of day. Yeah. I remember the um, this game six against the Trailblazers, and they were losing by 16 points going to the fourth quarter. And he's sitting down on the bench, and I remember watching him because chances are they're going to game seven at this point. And the bench comes in and these are the guys you're probably talking about. And we can only imagine what he had done to ready those guys for that moment. And they made the run. Now he came off and he came in and finished them off. But if it wasn't probably for all those practices and for all those pushing and to yell the guys, break, 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 right? They probably don't win. They don't win their point. You know, maybe they win game seven, but they probably lose game six. Well, they ended up winning that game in a game they probably shouldn't yeah. have won because the bench came in. The guys that that are role players that didn't typically play in those moments played in that moment, probably because of what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's tough. Yeah. Well, the moments in practice were probably tougher for them than the moments of playing the Portland trailblazers. Yeah. Because Michael made practice tough. Like, yeah. and that's the one thing that, you know, I think he's legendary about is you're going to practice and you're going to practice hard. Yeah. And you're going to compete. Larry bird, the same way. The great players create the culture for their teams. And Michael was that way. He never begged out of practice. Larry was that way with the, the Celtics. And I think the great players set the tone where if a great player is all of a sudden begging out of practice, then everyone can take, you know, yeah, they can take a day off. And, yeah. and that'll get you beat. Yeah. I want to talk real quick. We'll get you out of here pretty soon about a couple of leaders that you had been around. We'd already talked about one of them. Dean Smith, obviously, I mean, one of the most well-known leaders in all of sport and obviously college basketball. What did Dean Smith mean to you? Oh, I, I love playing for Coach Smith. And I, I think at an early age, I knew what I was and what I wasn't. I knew that I was a smart player that was skilled, that wasn't a great athlete, that had to go to the right place. And when I visited North Carolina and I watched them practice and, and getting to know Coach Smith better, I knew he would appreciate the things that I could do and overlook the things that I couldn't do. And so I love playing for him because he was so brilliant as a coach and that it was stimulating mentally for me. And so just the way he organized practice to the way he prepared for the games to his overall philosophy about dealing with the players and the life lessons he would teach you. 
he truly was a teacher more than just a basketball coach. Yeah. When you see it with all the people he's impacted that are still out there, the current coach of North Carolina, now Roy Williams, who you actually were assistant with at Kansas, spent, I think, seven years in, in Kansas. So he obviously had to have a great impact on just working with him every day and some amazing teams you guys had there. I mean, some players yes. that come to mind, Paul Pierce, who obviously yep. a lot of people listen would know, Drew Gooden, Rafe LaFriends. I mean, and I think you did a lot of recruiting for them. So you probably saw those kids at a very young age. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, you know, you say those are players that were great players that never won a championship. Rafe never went to a Final Four. Paul never went to a Final Four. But they were great players that had great careers. And, yeah, I got to know the inner workings of the Carolina system, having worked for Roy at Kansas. And then you realize when you become the head coach at North Carolina, all the expectations and the pressures that Coach Smith had to deal with And on a relative basis, it's like what Trump's going through right now. I find Donald Trump amazing, whether you agree with him or not, just his energy to face the media each and every day with a fresh suit on, clean shaven. (laughs) Like he's a human being, like he goes to bed and he's got to wake up. And every morning, you know, he's got to wake up and he, I, I go back to the four E's, you know, Does he have energy? Yes. Can he energize others? Yes. Can he execute? Yes. Does he have an edge? Yes. Now, people don't have to like him, and a lot of people don't, but you do have to admire his energy and strength to stand before the country and the world each and every day in the face of this pandemic. And to a lesser degree, Dean Smith had to do that every day at North Carolina. Roy Williams has to do that every day at North Carolina. And I had to do it for every day at North Carolina. And you don't realize how wearing that is until you step away from that position. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did I deal with that? It's stressful. It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot to deal with. I mean, but you've been surrounded with these people. And now here you are with another person, John Maxwell, one of the most well-known leaders in business. I mean, they got content for days, books, podcasts, video series, you name it, inside of major, large corporations, small businesses. What drew you to John Maxwell? Well, a friend of mine, Donnie Jones, who's the coach at Stetson, you know, I knew that last year in March, I wanted to go this route and improve as a public speaker and a corporate consultant. And, you know, I was looking at different programs to join because I felt like I needed some Credibility. I didn't want to just be a a former coach who now speaks. Like I wanted to have some legitimacy to me, a certification. And Donnie had gone through it the year he was away from basketball after he left Central Florida. And I asked him, I said, Donnie, tell me about it because I don't want to just pay a bunch of money for something that's not worth it. And he said, Matt, it was a life changing experience. And so that's all I needed to hear from a trusted friend. And I joined the program and went through it in about six months and enjoyed it. I learned a lot. It gave me credibility in the marketplace. I quote John Maxwell often. I use some of his resources in my teachings. And it helped me understand how to structure my consulting business. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And the leadership that you bring about, the experiences that you've had, the people that you've surrounded yourself with, it's no wonder that you're able to talk about it at, at this level. We were, you were talking about before when the game starts, the ball game starts, you don't know what's going to happen. I heard an interview with Larry King 
And he said, it's the wonder when I wake up in the morning, there's a ball game on that day. Right now, we're not living with that because there's no games on. When there are games on, you don't know what's going to happen. And that is the wonder of it. It's no different than I say the wonder of building a business, the wonder of entrepreneurship. You're going to start and you have great intentions and great plans, but things are going to change. Things are going to get thrown at you. It's not going to be easy. Your your wife might ask you, how's it going? And maybe the answer is not so good at that moment. It's no different than this conversation. Got introduced to you and actually had asked someone about you, Coach Alan Major, who coached down here in Charlotte, Coach Ohio State, said, I'm going to be talking to Matt Doherty. Good things to say. He's a great man. Tell him I said hello. So Coach Alan Major says hello, but you get in these conversations and you don't know how a conversation is going to go. And I think it's the wonder of communication and whether we're in person or have to do it over Zoom because of all that's going on. That's it. It's the wonder of sports, the wonder of entrepreneurship, the wonder of the conversations that we can have. So it's been awesome hearing your stories and all that you've been through and are working on right now. What's the best way people get a hold of you? Or what should they be checking out when it comes to Matt Doherty? Yeah, well, they can follow me on Twitter at Doherty Matt, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. M-A-T-T. And I like to do a thought of the day every day. I collect quotes. And it's really... A friend of mine once said, basically, you preach the most what you need the most. And so a lot of this is really for self-help. Like It helps me grow to find a quote to put on Twitter each day. And then people want to talk to me about working with them as an executive coach or their company. They can reach me through my email, which is M-F, my last name, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y at me.com. That's again, M-F-D-O-H-E-R-T-Y at me.com. I'm in the process of putting together a website that will be better suited, but that's the best way to get in touch with me. That's awesome, Matt. Well, I appreciate your time and experiences and sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank thank you for having me on. I look forward to uh, hopefully doing this again sometime. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Mm-hmm.